We're singing Peabody's Energy Swan Song on today's show. But thankfully for the listeners, since we have terrible voices, there will be no actual singing involved. <laughs> hey, everyone. I'm Tyler Crow uh, for Industry Focus. It's Thursday, April 14th, which means it's the energy show. But, you know, we do way more in energy. We do industrials. We do materials. Yes, you know, materials on the show All those today. things that... If you were to invest, the things your grandfather would recommend right. that you actually invest in. Uh, I'm here with Taylor Muckerman from Motley Fool Canada. And in place of our normal host, if you're probably listening to it on the podcast, but we do have a video of it on the podcast, in replacement of our normal host, Sean O'Reilly, we have an ornamental garden gnome. So thanks for having us, Sean. How yeah, do you feel today? I appreciate it. Oh, wow. He's nodding Great his head. Great content. Yes. Thanks a lot. He's nodding his head. So we're going to talk about Peabody Energy's bankruptcy, uh, some dividend cuts, most notably National Oil Well Varco, and earnings seasons getting kicked off with Alcoa. Mm-hmm. But let's start, like I said, with Peabody's bank, uh, Peabody Energy filing for Chapter 11 bankruptcy this year or t- this week. Yeah, yeah. I guess the last of the big four uh, U.S. companies to do so, I think, right? You have Alpha Natural Resources, Cloud Peak, uh, and, um, and uh, uh, Arch Coal. Arch Coal, yeah, yeah. yeah. So. Finally, it's been a long time coming. 2011, I guess, is when you started to see um, prices start their slide down 75% for coal since 2011. Not many people back then realized exactly what was happening when it started, but um, a five year slog that these companies have been going through in 2015, 2016 finally came to a head. Um, you look at China, one of the biggest, if not the biggest, demand centers for coal. They're looking at possibly a third straight year of reduced coal demand. Um, it was down 4.7% in 2015. Expectations for down two more percent this year um, in terms of coal demand out of China. Um, and even in Cole's backyard, West Virginia demand down 12% last year. Uh, Maryland and Ohio both down 50% since 2005 in just the last decade half the coal production demand that they've been using for coal power plants, and uh, 33% nationally. So, been a rough decade, not, not um, a but good, especially the last so five years. Um, I, I actually have a, a crazy stat. I did this back in December of 2015 mm-hmm. and actually tweeted it out. In December of 2010, the combined market cap of the f- the United States' four largest coal producers by volume, mm-hmm. they had a combined market cap of $32 billion. As of December 2015... That market cap was down to three hundred million. Eesh. And the gnome is just was, shaking his head. The gnome side is shaking side. his head. And that is it, before Peabody Energy went bankrupt. Mm-hmm. Uh, even I think actually even before Arch Coal filed for bankruptcy. So that number has gotten even smaller. Yeah. I mean, they're not even technically companies listed on the stock market anymore because of their liquidation. Or sorry, not liquidation. Not, it's not, Chapter Eleven, yeah. so it's reorganization. Apparently, they're not even planning to liquidate. I mean, maybe they are in behind closed doors, but a lot of them have kept production up or have grown production over the last year. Or so, in face of probably understanding that the end is near and. That is something that I find absolutely fascinating about the coal story because whenever you see stuff, you know, you talked about a lot of the weakening demand and the global mm-hmm. gut glut of coal, and everybody just kind of blames that on the on, on these companies' demise on mm-hmm. their downturn. And yes, that has been a huge factor. But one of the things I don't think a lot of people really think about is these companies 
made some really bad moves a few years ago that are finally coming to reckoning. And just to give you an idea, in 2011, the the absolute peak of this cycle. Yeah, that's when we talked about prices being down 75% since 2011. So since then, right at that time, Peabody Energy buys MacArthur Coal for $4 billion. Mm -hmm. Alpha Natural Resources buys Massey Energy for $7 billion. Arch Coal buys International Coal for 3.4. Walter Energy buys Western Coal for 3.3 billion. <laughs> Every single one of these companies made a massive, massive purchase at the top of the cycle, took on huge It's a gold debt to rush right it. there. Everyone's competing yeah. with each other, trying and, to get bigger, get bigger, get bigger. And so when you see those huge moves mm-hmm. four or five years ago, and I think this could be a good long term investing sort of. Uh, view for people is when when you get in these big commodity boom cycles mm-hmm. when everybody's like we're going to grow like crazy because there's this booming demand somewhere overseas mm-hmm. and it's looking great and you see these sort of moves that can kind of be a little bit of a yellow flag be like whoa there's some people making some very yeah. aggressive moves and when you're looking at something like energy it, it's it can grow in fits and starts but it's never a massive growth engine, yep. you know, multiple double-digit growth every year that you see in other industries. It's a slower-growing industry, and you have to understand that when it comes to the commodity cycle because if you grow too fast, you're going to hit a boom, a bust like we're hitting now, and that was a perfect example of it. Yeah, I remember I first started at The Motley Fool in 2012 as an energy and materials analyst, and... we I think we landed right was, about the same time. Yeah, and, and it was just all talking about... When is coal going to turn around? When is coal going to turn around? And here we are, four years later, and still even worse. We kept off than trying to call the bottom. And everybody's like, "Oh, it's going It can't get any worse yeah. than this." It, well, it did. It and certainly it's still has. Getting worse. Yeah, you, we even were talking about. Oh, there's certain basins like the Powder River Basin out west, which is like some of the cheapest coal to mine. So you think, hey, Peabody has great exposure there. And that that was their saving grace for for a minute, and now even they aren't. Uh, they're not. They're they're the now the last ones to be exposed to bankruptcy court. So, any upside uh, I that mean, you see out of coal in the future, like maybe not companies and to invest in, but just the industry. I'm going to play a little bit of a devil's advocate here because. I, you know, you hear the, you know, the things. Coal still represents thirty-two percent of yeah. our generating capacity. We have to have coal for a while longer, and that's fine. I understand that. And but just to play a little devil's advocate for investors who, you know, you want to play both sides off of each other. As much as it could be prominent, there is still a. a I think it's going to be very, very difficult to be a very good place to invest Mm -hmm. over the next several years, regardless of the company that you choose, even if it's well-financed or not. And here's one of the things that just, just to give you an example of what we're looking at. um, We've been talking about oil, this massive inventory uh, overhang Mm -hmm. in oil. We've got so much that we don't know what to do with it. It's going to take years for that amount of oil to clear, Uh, which if you break it down into consumption, is about 60 days worth of consumption in the United States. If you look at Coal's inventory, basically, how much is built up in inventory for utilities? If we utilities, ceased all production, right. this is what they could live off of. You could go for 200 days. See, now that's what you kind of want in your nuclear bomb shelter right there. Exactly. You, know, you want you a 200 days worth of food and water, and this but, is what the coal industry has. But when you have companies that are bankrupt that are still producing because they have to pay off debts and companies that are still producing because they're trying to still make a buck to mm-hmm. stave off bankruptcy yep. – when is the gut going to clear? Yeah. And that's the biggest thing that I look at it as one of those things where how can we take that much oversupply 
in a declining industry and really make money. And I think it's going to be a very, very hard thing. And anybody who's looking at this space should be well aware of that risk. And I would say tread carefully. Yeah, exactly. And especially when you think about not only is coal cheap, but natural gas is really cheap. It's cleaner. And nuclear power plants, they're the the base load that is also even cleaner than natural gas, much more expensive to turn off and turn on. So you have these two base loads that um, are cleaner, um, somewhat more efficient, and, and now you have this huge overhang of, of coal. So... I'm wondering if they're going to start some negotiations together and be like, hey, maybe we should all, like, maybe like a miniature OPEC of coal producers in the U.S. Because I doubt one company in particular is going to be like, oh, yeah, we'll just rely on We're our, fine. Yeah, Don't worry yeah, about yeah, it. We'll, we'll take care of it. That's guys. right. We'll, we'll reduce our production for everyone. Yeah, right. Yeah. And, and just on a small kind of aside from the talk of Patriots bankruptcy, one of the great things when it comes to financial media or businesses in general is, Companies like to kind of slide bad news in under mm. the radar as much as they the can. The old Friday at 5 o'clock yeah. press release. Yeah. yeah, so a great one. Um, uh, another bankruptcy actually hit this week. It's a company by the name of Energy 21. They're a specialty in oil, offshore oil and gas mm. exploration. They were a big acquisition company. And right on the heels of Peabody Energy's bankruptcy, which is going to generate a ton of yeah. media, you know, they slip a little, oh, we're going into Chapter 11 too. So. <laughs> Golf, Another debt-laden acquisition for, yeah. bankruptcy. Golf clap for them yeah. for finding a nice quiet time <laughs> to go bankrupt. So, uh, just kind of moving on, we you know we talked a lot about bankruptcy and sticking with the bad news theme a little bit here. Let's talk about some dividend cuts. Yeah, we're, people are probably thinking, scratching their heads. Oil prices are up. Why such dour news about about the energy yeah. space today? So uh, earlier this week, National Oil Well Varco, a uh, company both. Taylor and I are big fans. Yeah, we've of. both been to HQ down there in yeah, Houston. Talk talk to the CEO of the company yep. went at various times, and I think we're both personally invested in the company. I am, I am not, but it's definitely a company that I follow closely. But uh, they cut their dividend yes. by eighty nine percent. I yeah, believe I it's down right. to five cents per quarter. Yep. Uh, one of the biggest reasons, uh, CEO Clay Williams, basically saying, you know, we we want to treat shareholders right, but with the market acting the way it is. We had to cut it. Yep. Um, and something you just kind of hinted at for a quick second there is we're starting to see oil rise again. Yeah, you know, a little all bit. this good news is coming out. Like above production's starting to slide. Yeah. It's above $40. And everybody's optimistic again. So, in your opinion, why do you see this as like, you know, if it's getting better, why now? Well, I guess, you know, a dividend, we always say, is never a guarantee to be paid out. Um, and with National Oil Well Varco, it's a company that is very heavily tied to offshore rigs, and and so I think that's a little bit further out in terms of recovery. We're still seeing land rig declines. Mm-hmm. Um, so until you start to see land activity pick back up, you're still a ways off from offshore activity. Um, not to say that this company has no exposure to onshore activity. So when that picks up, their revenue likely will as well. But um, I think it's a prudent move by a company that's been around, um, and they do have great diversification across the sector, but offshore is still a big portion of this business, and um, you continue to see rigs being cold stacked, put put back out the docks, or being tried to be uh, sold in auctions. Or even cannibalized. Um, or seen, even, you've yeah. seen a lot of companies doing that, where they're just basically taking rigs, either land or offshore, yeah. and being like, well, we're not going to use this thing for a while. Let's, break it down. let's strip it down yeah. and use parts for it. 
Um, so, so that's my opinion. Is is it? It's going to take some offshore activity to really get this company back. Um, I don't think that it's going to take offshore activity to turn the stock around, but it's going to take offshore activity to get it back close to where it was a couple of years ago. As much as somebody's personally invested in it, I. I I'm not a fan of kind of losing the dividend check. Absolutely which, not. Which, yeah, you know, but it's a tough at the same time, I I do kind of have to golf clap them a little bit for deciding to do a dividend cut while the finances for the company still look good. If you look right, at yeah. the company's balance sheet, it still has a ton of cash. It's still, I believe, actually net cash positive yeah. in terms of their debt. Don't quote me on that one. I don't have they the They weren't getting up. a swirly from the energy market. Right. They're getting bullied into it. Exactly. Yeah. So they're doing it as a more prudent move now to kind of be ready for when the market does mm-hmm. turn that they will have you know, well-financed and capital ready and available to either make an acquisition Which or something they do. like that. Historically, very, very, very well. routinely. Yeah, and very well. Yes. Um, when I talked to Pete Miller a couple of years ago, he talks about they just have this huge. I mean, whether or not it is an actual binder is up for discussion because he didn't show us, but he's like, we just have an entire wealth of, like an encyclopedia of, mm. of our acquisitions that we can turn to to make sure we're following these steps that we've actually either discovered don't work or, or that we have seen play out well over time consistently. So, this is a company that has been very good at acquisitions and you would love to see them with some spare cash at a, at a um, pretty advantageous yeah. time. And there's one place where they have been pouring a lot of money into as of late. When I talked with uh, Clay Williams last, what was it, it's like six months ago, mm-hmm. one of the places they're really uh, putting money into is floating production and offloading yeah. um, facilities, which are basically like take a super tanker and float it out in the middle of the ocean. It's just going to float there and collect oil, and then tankers come and basically load they're and offload siphon there. it off, yeah. And so... These facilities are much more economical than you know some of the other things that they have been using for a very long time. They're more mobile, so they can be reused versus like stationary infrastructure. Yep. And so, but like rigs twenty years ago, they're not a very standardized, industrialized process. They're all kind of ad hoc put together. National Oil of Arco wants to take that standardization process that they used in rigs mm-hmm. into this market, and that could be a huge boom for them. That could help tide things over because those projects, things that are uh, FPSOs is what yeah. they're called, um, when at, those are still going to market now because they were investment decisions that were made years ago and, and still need to be moved along. So if there's anything that will help them in the interim, I think that is one place I think investors should kind of take a look at. Sure. And they're not the only ones that have waited this long to cut their dividend. I mean, you said BP is considering BP it as well. BP is considering not it. Yet. They haven't they, done, they haven't anything, done but it, but there were some hints from their chairman that says, look, we might have to. Mm-hmm. We're, we're not saying we're going to. We want to preserve it as best as we can, which is what every company executive is going to say. Yeah. But in the event that we have to, we will. I'm still wondering why more companies or any other companies, for that matter, haven't taken on the silver wheat and dividend model where it's predictable because it's a certain percentage of previous four quarters um, free cash flow. So you can model that out. You can see it. The only unpredictable thing is the upcoming fourth quarter that they're reporting. So, or not the fourth quarter, but the, the upcoming quarter that they're going to report. Um, so you've got those three quarters you can rile on. You can kind of see where the dividend is going. And you know it's floating, so you're not really expecting anything in particular. Mm-hmm. And I think that's a great model for resource companies. It is, and I've and I, this was uh, an after on camera discussion that was off the record, so I can't say who it was. But I talked with um, some 
a CFO at a at an energy company one time and asked him about that idea. I said, "Hey, you know, you can try to protect your cash flow as much as you can mm-hmm. with various methods, but ultimately this is a commodity business. Yep. Why stay with a fixed dividend?" And he said, "I would love nothing more than to have a set floor dividend where it's like we'll pay a, you know, nominal 2-3 cents a share per yep. quarter." And then pay a percentage of profits or a percentage of capital. Yeah. I would love like a, to do adjustable that. rate mortgage. You get I would the love floor to rate do that. plus or minus. Yeah. Problem is, we would get killed <laughs> in the equity markets. Nobody would buy our stock. It, it would, and it's kind of one of those weird self-fulfilling prophecies. Like, as somebody who's a fan of dividend investing, I want to see a fixed dividend. Yeah. As as much as I understand the you know concept of the variable rate, where it's more sustainable. Yeah. I still kind of like the fixed dividend, and so I can kind of understand his sympathy and why, as much as analysts as we see it and go, this is the best way to do it. Why nobody actually wants to take that step? Yeah, I guess if you, maybe if you started that way, like Silver Wheaton came right out of the gates with yeah. this style dividend, and to maybe completely adjust your model might ruffle some feathers a little bit. Yeah. Hey, do you know how many things that we celebrate in the month of April? Uh, in terms of like daily, like national, like national, national beer day last month, week or something. Right? Yeah, like, so no, last week uh, we did National Beer Day. Yeah, I know there was like there, National Sibling Day there recently. Is countless amount of things. Yeah. What's spring? People want it's a reason April. to celebrate. So, just an example: National Jazz Appreciation Month, National Soft Pretzel Month, Ooh. National Soy Soy Foods Month, yeah. and National Straw Hat Month. Okay. But you know, one of the things that's kind of straw hat. So one of the things that's near and dear to our hearts in the Molly Fool is the one that we actually created, and that's Financial Literacy Month. Yep. We want to use this month to brush up on, for those of you to brush up on personal financing and investing topics that you've always wanted to know more about so you can take greater control of your financial future. To help you get started, we're giving away our own ebook, The Motley Fool Guide to Investing for Beginners. It covers the basic information you need to know, like should you pay off debts or invest first with that extra money you have? Uh, how to develop an investing thesis, and we'll even share with you some of the mistakes that our analysts and our even founder and CEO Tom Gardner have made along the way so you can avoid making these same mistakes. Just head on over to podcast.fool.com to get your free copy. And while you're there, you can also check out some of the other podcasts we do here at The Motley Fool. Taylor is a frequent uh, contributor to Market Foolery. Yeah, we have it's our, about every Monday. About every Monday. Yeah. We've got uh, David Gardner, another one of our founders, mm-hmm. Rule Breaker Investing. Great podcasts. And so, again, head on over to podcasts.fool.com, and all of it's free. Who doesn't want free yeah, stuff? Yeah, freebies. Investing isn't free, but our, our educational materials are invaluable. Invaluable. Yeah, and even if you aren't a beginning investor, great way to brush up on it. It's very approachable. You might even think, oh, I haven't thought about that in a couple of years, and then maybe maybe just rekindle some old flames of there investing. Yeah. So, with the – also in the month of April – Happens to be the kickoff of first quarter quarterly earnings for 2016. It already yeah. happened. We, I thought we just barely <laughs> finished the end of uh, last quarter. And to kick us off, we have Alcoa. Yep. Um, so earnings fell. The headline number says earnings fell 92%, which always sounds yeah. bad. But was it really as bad as that actually sounds? Expectations like? were worse. So oh. they beat expectations, um, at least on always the bottom got a line. Level, low hurdle. That's right. Over. Extremely low hurdle. When your hurdle is close to. Um, Almost a hundred percent less revenue than you had, or earnings than you had the quarter before in the year prior. Um, yeah, 
you feel pretty good about yourself when you come in at 92% less. Um, revenue, though, did miss just slightly. Um, I think it was down 15% year over year. Um, I just need to take a moment to like scratch my head, maybe shake it a little bit, because they're about to spin off their uh, aerospace and, and automotive business. They're, they're more mm-hmm. high, high margin business um, in the second half of this year, and Arconic is what they named it. A-R-C-O-N-I-C. I don't know. I mean, you would think like last year when they spun, they said we're going to spin it off and they didn't have a name yet. Like you said, expectations were pretty low for the quarterly. Expectations were really high for the name. Arconic. But they came up with Arconic. My goodness. Um, They might have a good reason for it, but it doesn't really sound like even a name I want to invest in. Alcoa just sounds... Well, I mean, it's been around for so long. Yeah, that's true. Maybe it's just branded into my skull. Um, But much like the coal industry, Alcoa is blaming China, turning into a consumer country, um, not spending as much on aluminum. Uh, Prices are are down like 40%, I think, from their most recent high. Um, So the the company's struggling still, held back by their smelting operations Mm -hmm. and their production operations. that being said, the automotive and aerospace still doing very well. So when that spins off, it's going to give investors um, access to the consumer on that end with Arconic and access to the production side with Alcoa still. So you're not going to be constrained to this blended model. Right. Um, so you know they're they're just still talking about shedding more jobs um, ahead of the split. Um, personally, I, I do like what they're doing with aerospace and automotive. It's lighter, it's strong, and, and you see companies around the world foregoing steel mm. in, in favor of aluminum in, in applications across the board. Right. Yeah, and I, I have been very interested in this spinoff for a couple of reasons. Um, like you said, it, it's looking much more robust mm-hmm. in terms of a company. Um, there is certainly some opportunity with the expansion of aerospace and defense and we're starting to see uh, automotive with you know Ford F150 going to a lot more aluminum yeah, construction all aluminum for frame. yeah um, Tesla all aluminum right, frame. all aluminum and so it really intrigues me and one of the reasons it also intrigues me is if you you know looking at the financials specifically of Arconic I'm I'm hate <laughs> yes, we'll get used to the name to eventually. But if you look, the margins were actually pretty good. I mean, if you, they have a operating margin of about sixteen yeah. percent, which is pretty decent. Shit. Yeah. And another reason that that one actually interests me is another move that happened a few months ago was uh, Berkshire Hathaway buying Precision Cast Parts. Right. And yep. if you look at the two, you know, businesses when you take the spinoff and Precision Cast Parts to get head to head, they look relatively similar. Sure. And so from an investor standpoint, you know, Arconics does kind of interest me a little bit. The thing that – especially from evaluation because if you look at how much um, Berkshire paid for precision cast parts compared to what you could pay for mm-hmm. Alcoa today and get both at the split and then just lose your – and shed your Alcoa shares, yeah. it does look very attractive from a valuation standpoint. Um, the thing that, that worries me more than anything else is – how the company decides to divide up the debt. Yeah. Um, you know, when you have a company like this, where are they going to, how is that going to break out and how is that going to affect the company's profitability long term? Because if they, you know, tie up all of the debt into the existing, co- uh, into the new company, our yeah, interest is going to crunch. To pay margins. it off. Yeah, yeah. that's going to be my one issue. So I am watching this one with 
with a quite a bit of interest in, than yeah. I normally would with Alcoa. And um, so I would really like to see that happen. Absolutely, yeah. And you look at the automotive <clears throat> parts sector in particular, the, right now it it's trading at a very cheap multiple on price to book compared to other sectors. Um, GavCall Research put out a great image um, this morning, or at least I saw it this morning, and it listed probably like 20 to 30 industries, not just the main sectors, but industries. And, and right down there with banking at the very bottom with a 0.9 price to book value, automotive parts and suppliers were, um, were right down there just above one. So it's a very cheap sector right now. Not to say that that's all this is tied to because there's aerospace involved in there as well. Um, but you know, maybe it's something to look at when they spin it off in the second half of this year. So the, now that Elko has kicked off the earnings season, what is the th- theme, the stock? What is what's your on your radar for the next couple couple weeks, month or so? I'm looking at who's got the who's going to jump the starting gun on spending in oil now that prices are back up forty oh, percent. It's yeah, forty dollars. It's going to stay mean, here forever. A again. year ago, forty dollars yeah. was a death kiss, but today it's the you oh know the God. kiss of life. This whole week has been pretty nutty in the oil markets in terms of uh, appreciation in the in the markets. Um, so I'm looking at who's going to jump off the blocks a little bit too soon. Maybe not um, sign on the dotted line to commit to spending, but at least just bringing up the idea of putting rigs back to use or uh, of going out there and, and spending money um, to get oil production back up to where uh, – not where it was previously, but who wants to, to raise the needle first? I, I'm I'm kind of I'm with you on the same thing, but I'm not necessarily looking at it from an earnings or a management call perspective. Mm-hmm. I'm actually watching it from – the spring bank redetermination. So every six months or so, banks kind of look at the credit status of all these companies. And normally what happens in downtimes like this is they cut the amount that's basically available on somebody's credit card. Yep. Uh, and companies can say what they want, be like, oh, yeah, we want to spend more money. We're going to put some new drilling rigs out there because it's getting a little bit better. You have to have some money to do it. Yeah. And if the banks decide to cut everybody's spending – where the heck are they going to get the money to do it? I mean, we've seen a couple happen already. Uh, like we were talking in the beginning, Chesapeake Energy has basically committed every single asset yeah. they own to protect their liquidity. The garage sale is still open if, yeah. if need be. So that will be an interesting theme, I think, worth watching because it could impact how you know what happens over the next six months in yep. terms of production increasing, pricing, and things like that. So, yeah, Taylor, thanks a lot. You got um, it. Hey, thanks, Noam, for yeah, filling thanks. in for Sean. You performed um, admirably. If you have any questions about today's show, like if you prefer Sean or the Garden Gnome for, as, a, <laughs> as a host for the show, please email us at industryfocus at fool.com. We love hearing from you and taking your questions, and we would really like to do a complete mailbag show in a couple of weeks. It's one yeah. of our favorite things to do. So send in a bunch of questions, and we'd love to do it. Or tweet at TMF Energy. We'll, or, we'll, we'll or, look at both. Yep. Yep. And as always, people on the show have interest in the stocks mentioned, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against those stocks. So don't buy, sell based solely on what you hear. For Taylor, I'm Tyler. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.